Well, I invite you once again to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us, we have begun a study of this Gospel account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We are in week five, and uh, we are finally going to finish chapter one. So that's good news. Five weeks, one chapter. Some of you are, are doing the math and... Yes, I hope that each chapter won't take this long, but if it does, we're going to be in John for the next couple years, so we'll see how that goes. Wouldn't have been the first time that a pastor spends a couple years in John, I'm sure. As we finish up chapter one this morning in our study of this book, we remind you that after John's majestic remarks in the opening verses the verses that we call the prologue, verses 1 through 18 in the Gospel of John. We are now, as of last week, we're in the first week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so last week we covered the first two days of this first week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and today we're going to cover the next three days. So we're in the midst of five consecutive days that will again continue next week. But before we go there, before I read our text this morning, I want to remind you of this statement that we heard in the prologue in verse 11 from the Apostle John. He wrote this, he came, that is Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now John made that statement Not as an absolute statement, but as a a general statement. Most of his people, most of the Jews, did not respond to Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah, as the Christ, the anointed one. However, some did receive him. And some did receive him with eagerness and with anticipation. And these, this morning, are some of those stories. Some of those first stories of Jesus being received. And so listen as I read once again out of John chapter 1. We're going to begin at verse 35. You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your own copies of God's Word. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And so I invite you to do that with me out of honor for His Word. John chapter 1 verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As we begin this morning, I want to return in part to a topic that we briefly talked about a couple months ago on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter. And the topic that we briefly spoke about, the issue I briefly spoke about, is the issue of testimony. Ours has often been called the information age. We've talked about that. But it can also be termed the age of the image. And in fact, many people have termed our age as that as well. You see, it seems that images, whether moving images or or still images, have become the primary way that we engage the world, or at least one of the primary ways that we engage the world. Some of you kids don't remember this day, but I used to remember, many of you remember, when cameras were held in big bulky bags and video recorders for parents to film their children's whatever were like cinder blocks that you put on your shoulder and carried around. As a result of the fact that now all those things are neatly in our pockets, all of our pockets, Show me is often the demand, right? Show me is the demand for proving something's veracity. Words aren't enough. At times, the words even of those we love and trust aren't enough. Show me, we say. But here's the reality. History requires testimony. It demands Somebody's words. Listen to these wise words of one scholar I read this week speaking about our access to the past. He says, we cannot avoid testimony and we cannot avoid interpretation. He's not just talking about the Bible. He's talking about any kind of history. We cannot avoid faith. What is commonly referred to as a knowledge of the past is more accurately described as faith in a testimony. 
in the interpretation of the past offered by others. So if we are going to live our lives in absolute skepticism about everything that we can't verify with our own eyes, in our own experience, or with our own five senses, we are going to be sure of very little, aren't we? And besides, even in this age of image, images are so easily manipulated these days. They at times can't even be trusted. So how can we know what's true? Well, that's a question that philosophers have mused upon for ages, something we could spend a lot of time on. We're not going to get into the philosophical weeds of how we can know what's true. I bring up the question simply, and I lead our minds there simply to lead us to the message of this passage, to the intent of John the author. Because he wants you to know that Jesus is one to be believed. It's why he wrote these words. It's why he wrote this account. It's why he records the stories of these men. And so as we walk through the stories of these five men, I want us to see three truths this morning. Three truths that are first directed at John's original audience in the first century, but are also directed equally so to every one of you sitting here in 2023. And the first one is this. Three simple words. Come and see. Come and see. As we begin our passage this morning, two disciples of John the Baptist are introduced. One is Andrew. The other one is not named, though many assume that the one who is not named is John, the author of this gospel, the author of this book, the son of Zebedee. You see, John never mentions himself by name in his gospel account. Well, these two men, Andrew and John, they are followers of John the Baptist, meaning they have attached themselves to his teaching, to listen and to learn from him. His message has become their message. And this, of course, was not uncommon in that day in first century Judaism, to attach yourself to a teacher, to a rabbi, to learn from him. But what is uncommon in our passage this morning is their defection from John the Baptist. How quickly Andrew and John shift their allegiance from their original rabbi, from their original teacher, to this brand new guy who comes on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth. But you see, John the Baptist had conditioned them for this very thing. They were ready for this. As we spoke about last week when we unpacked a little bit of John the Baptist's ministry, his was a self-abasing ministry. It was never about him. He was just a voice crying in the wilderness for someone whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. And so when he, in the presence of his disciples, says, Behold, the Lamb of God, they knew what to do. And they go after him. Well, Jesus sees them. 
And he responds with a question, what are you seeking? That's what our ESV translation says. Now, we could think of that in a simple way, something like Jesus is saying, what's up, guys? What's going on? What are you doing? Or we could think that in a deeper, probing possibility, one that hits us this morning. What are you really after in following me? What do you really want, Jesus could be saying? Well, maybe Andrew and John, they don't know really what they want. (laughs) Because they respond not with an answer, but with another question. Do you notice that? Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, Rabbi, which is a common designation, teacher, where are you staying? It's almost as if they're saying, can, can we talk? <laughs> can, we, can we talk in private a little bit? Can we sit down and spend some time with you? We have some questions. And I love the fact that Jesus is not put off by this. He's not offended by this. He doesn't say, how dare you? Did you hear what your teacher said about me? Did you hear who I am? Fall in line. No. His response is what he invites every one of you this morning to do. Come and see. Come and see. Spend some time with me. Examine me. Ask questions of me. Listen to my words. Engage the evidence before you. You'll see if you are willing to come and see. And that's exactly what they do. And the result is that Andrew is forever changed. And he goes and gets his brother. you got to come and hear this guy. you got to see this guy. We'll get to him in a moment. But what's going on in these first verses? These first few verses. Well, as Jesus says to the disciples, come and see, John is saying the very same thing in this account. As we noted a few months ago, he says the same thing in his letters to the churches. John does. This is what I saw. This is my testimony. This is an eyewitness account. I mean, even all the details that are included here in this passage that I just read, the time stamp, right? He tells us what time of day it is. He tells us of specific places and, of course, specific people. All to say, this is my testimony. This is what I saw. This is what I experienced. And this, brothers and sisters, friends, whoever is here this morning, this is what presents us with a choice. When we're confronted with Jesus' words and John the Apostle's words to say, come and see, we're presented with a choice. Listen to this quote. It's lengthy, but it's good. If you read these accounts, these accounts over and over are saying, we saw this, we saw this, we saw this. This isn't a legend. We saw this. And so you're going to have to come to the conclusion that a group of first century Jews who had been trained all their lives that human beings are not God came up with an elaborate, very conscious, very deliberate system of lies, wrote it up, and sent it out there. 
Then they went out into the world and they died for those lies and they lived lives of such attractive power that the whole Roman world was overcome and the whole pagan world was swept up by the power of their lives. So you either have to believe that they were deliberate lies by people who died for those lies or you have to believe that a human being was the creator God who came to earth to save us. But there is nothing in the middle that you can come to. There is no conclusion in the middle that is warranted. That is what Jesus is saying to you this morning. That is the choice before you. And so for all of you seekers, if you're here this morning, if you're listening online, for all of you fence-sitters, Jesus says, John says, come to me. Don't be lazy about this. This is important. Press into me. Figure it out. Make a conclusion. I am either the Lamb of God or I am a liar and a lunatic. You can't have anything in the middle. And let Jesus' question challenge you. What are you seeking? Because if you're here seeking a Jesus of your own making, well, that's a problem because this Jesus will no doubt offend you. But if you are seeking Him sincerely, if you are sincerely wanting the truth, like Nathaniel, who we'll get to in just a moment, then He wants to reveal Himself to you. So come and see. And then for those of you who I know and love, those who are confident in who Jesus is, be bold in the fact that the stories are true. As John says, as Jesus says, take these words upon your lips and in your lives. Those words, come and see. Do you know that every time Andrew is mentioned in John's gospel, He is either bringing someone to Jesus or he is referring someone to Jesus every time. What a way to be remembered. Now some people I recognize have the gift. Some of you are are natural gatherers. You're natural connectors. You're natural inviters. Obviously Andrew had that gift and we can be thankful for all those that do. But not having the gift doesn't completely absolve us from the invitation, from the obligation, from the opportunity to say to others, come and see. Come and see. After all, these were ordinary men who had seen someone extraordinary. That's it. They hadn't been trained for this. They just had experienced it. Their invitation to others naturally flowed from what they had experienced. They weren't salesmen. They were just sharing their stories. And that begs the question, for I think those of us who have grown up in the church, those of us who know and love Jesus, is how deeply and how dearly do we know Jesus? Really know Jesus. I mean, perhaps like Andrew and and John, the apostle, we need to just spend a bit more time with him. That we might grow in that depth 
and that breath of His love that it might overflow into the lives of others and those around us. Come and see. Come and see, Jesus says. Come and see, He invites us to take on our lips. That's the first thing I want us to look at this morning. But let's move on from the first three men to the other two. And the second encouragement this morning, which is simply this, rejoice that you have been found. Rejoice that you have been found. I love how Philip speaks to Nathaniel in verse 45. If you have your Bibles open, he says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And you say, um, Philip, I'm pretty sure that Jesus said just two verses earlier that he had found you. Did you notice that? Jesus is the one who found Philip. Jesus is the one who said, follow me. But of course, isn't that the way it works? That's what we sing, amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We sing that other more modern hymn, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys, but your spirit gave me life and opened up your word to me. We read through that, but it's a subtle nod to the glory and the sovereignty of God in all things, especially our salvation. It doesn't remove our responsibility to come and see, but it does acknowledge our absolute dependence upon Him. Rejoice that you've been found. Well, this is also seen in the calling of the last disciple that we learn of this morning. Nathaniel, who we also believe is often called Bartholomew. Well, Philip appears to be easily found, quick to invite others to come and see. What's Nathaniel's stance? Nathaniel is a bit more skeptical, isn't he? Nathaniel was from Cana, another city in Galilee, and when he hears that this Jesus is from Nazareth, he isn't all that impressed. Frankly, he shouldn't have been impressed. Nazareth was a small town of less than 2,000 people. It was not well thought of by fellow Galileans and certainly not worthy to be the hometown of the long-promised Messiah. So while he probably isn't all that pleased about it now, Nathaniel, his snarky comment describes the attitude of many in that day. Can anything good really come out of Nazareth? But again, notice how Jesus handles him. He isn't put off by this. Well, I know that John doesn't say that he said it in Jesus' hearing, but he does record that Jesus had already found Nathanael as well. He had seen Nathanael under a fig tree. What was Nathaniel doing under that fig tree? We don't know. Is there any significance to the fact that it was a fig tree? We don't know. Fig trees were often metaphors for Israel, but they were also just common trees in the area. We don't know all the details. What we do know is that Jesus, through supernatural, divine revelation, revealed Himself to Nathaniel, and it blew Nathaniel away. 
He had been chosen. He was blunt, Nathaniel was, but he was transparent. But his skepticism was not a turnoff. His sincerity was an asset. It's almost as if Jesus says, again, to us here this morning, to those who are willing to be open and honest, to those who are willing to be serious and humble, Jesus delights to make Himself known. And calls those He finds to follow. Well, this following part is something that we're going to return to again and again all throughout John's Gospel But Jesus gives a preview of what He means in dealing with Simon. Verse 42, He says to Simon, you shall be called Cephas, the Aramaic word for rock. And then John gives us the Greek version, which which means Peter. What's Jesus doing? He's not telling Peter what he needs to become. He is telling Peter what he will make of him. And this becomes evident as we watch Peter's story unfold throughout the Gospel. You see, Jesus came to call us to new life, to give us a new name, to upend our lives in the best possible way. He finds, He gives new hearts, He gives new identities, He gives new Callings. Follow me, he invites in verse 43. Not just give a nod to my teachings, but as Luke will record, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow. Imitate my life, my character, my suffering, and my obedience to the Father. These men had no idea what they were in for, but Jesus gave them a hopeful glimpse. We'll return to the following all throughout this gospel. But let's end on the hopeful glimpse that Jesus gives. And the third thing I want us to meditate on for just a moment, it's this. Get ready for greater things. Get ready for greater things. Come and see. Rejoice that you have been found. And get ready for greater things things. Jesus didn't have to. Jesus had already wowed Nathanael into believing, but he fuels Nathanael's faith by speaking of what is to come. Truly, truly, Jesus says. This is a a solemn pronouncement. It was often attached to the end of prayers. Amen and amen. Jesus is basically stressing the importance of, of what He's about to say. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And all the ears of the Jews perked up. This phrase that Jesus just uttered, it was gold to the Jews who longed to be privy to otherworldly things. Greater revelation is coming, Jesus is saying. And as Jesus says this phrase, He's bringing in mind at least two things when He says this. First of all, He is taking His Jewish hearers all the way back to the book of Genesis. To the book of Beginnings. To the patriarch Jacob and a dream that he experienced. You know the story. 
Let me read it to you, part of it. Genesis 28, verse 12. And he, that is Jacob, dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and on top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. The Jews would have known this story. This was a pivotal story in the life of Jacob. And Jesus communicates here that the stories like this one and more to come, they are all about me. I am the ladder, Jesus says. You can't ascend it yourself. But the good news is that through me, you have access to the heavenly realities. As I am lifted up on that cross, the gate to heaven will be opened through my work. I am the new Bethel, Jesus says. The place where God is revealed. The place where God dwells. That's what he communicates. But then secondly, Jesus takes the title of the Son of Man. And again, the Jews' ears perked up as they remembered Daniel chapter 7. As Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and authority and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, Jesus is saying, hold on, Nathaniel. Hold on, disciples. You haven't seen anything yet. I'm the king who has come to establish his kingdom. I am the miracle worker who has come with signs and wonders. I've come as God. Heaven has come to earth. Things are about to get crazy. And this would have confused Nathaniel, no doubt. But it also would have thrilled him. To us here and now, heaven has opened. John testifies to it. Greater things have come. But the same words that Jesus said to those original hearers, He says to us this morning, greater things are still to come because heaven will open again and the Son of Man will descend with all His heavenly host and the distance between heaven and earth will be closed and shut forever. And so the challenge this morning Greater things are still to come. Are you ready for those greater things? We need to hear that. We need to believe that. We need to be ready. We need to be found. We need to come and see. So all of you here this morning, hear these promises from John chapter 1. Come and see this Jesus Rejoice that you have been found by Him that you might follow, for greater things are coming.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of your servant, the Apostle John. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your preservation of these words, generation upon generation. We thank you that they are not dead words from an ancient document that fall flat on our ears, but they are living and active, able to cut to our very souls. I can't do that. No logical presentation, no cogent argument that I give can accomplish that. Only You, Holy Spirit, can do that in the lives of those who are here, of those who are listening. It's no accident that these are here. It's no accident that these words, that this invitation to come and see have been given. So Father, may we go from this place in obedience to Your Word, in gratitude for Your grace. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.